0: To see how you speak to us in this passage today how here in the revelation of Jesus Christ you are revealed to us and you call us to follow lead us Lord not to just be just to be hearers but to be doers of the word in Jesus name amen so yeah we are in Revelation 13 um diving diving into that today uh challenging little passage Uh, We are well and truly now into what you call the the heavily image-laden part of this book. Uh, Last week, we met a dragon with seven heads and ten horns who represented Satan. Uh, This week, we're going to meet two other beasts that follow on from that first beast who are the agents of Satan in this world. And these passages are a part of a series of visions. Uh, Just to to locate you here, we're in a series of visions that fit between the seven trumpets in chapters 8 to 11 of the Revelation and the seven bowls which start in kind of chapter 15 and 16 of the Revelation. And these visions can be really difficult to interpret, especially if we're used to reading the Revelation as though it is only speaking about a specific distant time in the future. And that's because, as we've seen again and again in this book, This book was written for the church. Originally, it was written for the seven churches of Asia Minor, the seven churches to whom it is addressed in the first chapter. And it's a letter, and it maintains a letter structure the whole way throughout because it is written to them to speak to them. It was intended to speak to them clearly. And as we understand what it said to them, then we understand what it says to us. And if we don't understand what it says to them, then we're probably going to miss how it speaks to us and misinterpret it. So the visions that John receives in this chapter are not intended just for some far distant future generation because they're intended for a church 2,000 years ago. Churches, rather. They're intended for the church throughout every age as well. And that's why in these chapters we will hear again and again calls to live out the Christian life faithfully in ways that were specifically applicable to the original readers and which are still applicable to us here in Middleton in 2023 today. Let me me point this out to you. Last week, we looked at the heavenly war which has descended to the earth. The fact that Satan has been thrown down from heaven but is now active on the earth, attempting to deceive and to accuse and to kill God's people. And we found the purpose of that passage and in many ways the purpose of the whole book of the Revelation in the the statement in verse 11 of chapter 12 that said, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Now... That's not just some statement for a future generation. In fact, that was intentionally harking back in its language to the messages that we looked at at some length earlier this year in Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus made promises seven times to seven churches. He made promises to the one who conquers. And here in the centre of the book, we saw that we conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, as we love not our lives, even unto death. This is the call of the Christian faith. And now, this week and next week, we're going to see another of those strong discipleship themes from the messages in chapters 2 and 3 come back up again, arise, and, and show us how it's to be understood. In chapters 13 and 14, we run into this exact line word for word twice. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. These chapters are not written to satiate our curiosity. They're not written to be ignored either. They're written to show you the world that you live in, in the light of how heaven sees it, with all of its challenges, all of its difficulties, in a way that calls you to endure in Christ to the end. Isn't that relevant for all of us? You know, you might be in your 90s or in your 80s or in your 70s, you know, kind of, <laughs> I don't want to be rude and bunch you guys together, but I'm, I'm only halfway to 70 at the moment. So I, I have the biases of my age group. Take, take it that way. But, uh, you know, you might be getting closer to the finish line than some of us. And endurance is a big question in that time of life. Do you endure in the faith or do you just, just kind of sit back and relax for those last years and just wait for the end to come? You might be in the first three decades of your life. You might be in the first decade of your life. And you've got a long road ahead of you, potentially. And the question of endurance is a big question for you. You go to school, you, you go and you see other kids and, 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 and they're not living this life that you live They hold a different set of values than you. And that's looking like it's going to become more of a thing, not less of a thing. And the Bible calls you to endure faithful to Jesus. Not just because he calls you to some moral values, but because he calls you to live a better life in light of the good saviour that you have. A call for the endurance of the saints. And church... We want to be people who endure, whose faith persists, who do not just start out with Christ, but remain in Christ and are growing in faithfulness to him as a people. And critically, who do not grow discouraged when the world pushes back against our faith. So let's have a look now at these two visions. First, first John sees a beast rising out of the sea. This is one of the famous ones out of the Revelation. Uh, now, but pause there for a second. Quiz question. What do Nero, Domitian, they were emperors, by the way, uh, Pope Gregory VII, every other pope since him, Napoleon Bonaparte, Franklin Roosevelt, Benito Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, JFK, Mikhail Gorbachev, sorry Mikhail if I said you wrong, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Bill Gates, King Charles and Prince Harry all have in common. Sorry. Well, that's true, actually. That, that's a valid point. But also, at various times, people have identified them as the beast from Revelation 13, along with an enormously long list of other people. Uh, it's, it's breathtaking, the number of people. At some point, they've all been seen, pointed out by someone, I'm not saying a reputable someone necessarily, as the beast. And you know, whilst I don't necessarily agree with all of those identifications, I want to suggest that there's a reason why throughout history, so many people from so many generations have looked at leaders in their times and seen a connection with the beast in Revelation 13. Look at some of the details here, and let's ask some questions of this. First... Who is the first beast? John says that the beast was like a leopard with feet like a bear and a mouth like a lion. That's a little scary. What's happening here? Well, we're seeing an image. Do do you remember one of our principles for going through this book is we have to understand the Old Testament roots of the book. We're seeing an image that's rooted in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees one of three visions that he gets in his whole book of the empires of history which appear in in Daniel. Uh, In in his vision, uh, sorry, in this vision, four beasts rise from the sea, one who looks like a lion, one who looks like a bear, one who looks like a leopard, and one that is strong with iron teeth. Those beasts almost certainly operate as images of the Babylonian Empire, of the Medo-Persian Empire, of the Greek Empire, you know, Alexander the Great and all those guys. And finally, the Romans, uh, uh, under which the original readers of Revelation found themselves. But don't miss the point. John says that the beast looked a little bit like all of them. He had aspects of all of them. This beast doesn't represent a single empire. Although clearly for the original readers he was personified by Rome, right? Rather, he represents empires. He represents the kingdoms of this world. The reason why people have so often looked at leaders and seen the beast is that the beast is personified by many governments and many empires throughout history. Second question, when is the first beast? John says that the beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, which is 1260 days, which is three and a half years, or sometimes times time and half a time. Time, times and half a time. If you've, which means three and a half years, by the way. If you've been here for the last few weeks, that number should be fairly familiar to you. It's come up in three consecutive chapters of the Revelation now. It is the amount of time that Israel was in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. And it symbolizes the time in which the church, the people of God, are in the wilderness of this world before we enter the promised land of eternity. So the beast, and it's represented that three times now. This is the third time. So the beast does what the beast does for all of the time between between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. All of the time before Jesus returns. Third and final question. What does the beast do? See, the the beast represents government, but the beast isn't every government. He is governments who do specific things. We're given a few things. Let me put them under three broad titles here, although there's a, you could pan this out a fair bit. First, he imitates Jesus, not in the positive sense. He imitates the rule and power and salvation of Jesus. He sets himself up as a saviour. It says that he seemed to have a mortal wound but was healed. Does that sound familiar? Who's he trying to imitate there? The lamb who stood though he was slain. He says that he seemed to have a mortal wound that was healed. He imitates the lamb who was slain and now reigns, but he's a faker. What that means is that he sets himself up as a saviour, as Lord. This would have been profoundly unsurprising for the original readers who lived under, under Domitian, who insisted on being hailed as dominus et deus, Lord and God. He opposes God and his people. The passage says, that's number two, number two, he opposes God and his people. The passage says that the beast blasphemes God. He speaks against God and pretends that God isn't a big deal. He persecutes God's people and limits what they can do. In fact, he makes himself out to be God and he's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Finally, he accepts the worship of the world which belongs to God. It says there all who dwell on earth will worship it, will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who is slain. What do you have when you put the pieces together? The first agent of the dragon in the world Is dragon manipulated political power. Governments, when they stray out from under the rule of God and seek to be God instead. When governments and nations seek to go their own way and not God's way, they always set themselves up as saviours and yet they always don't become saviours, they become bestial. They become beasts. This goes for any political party and leaning right and left and centre, if that's a thing. Any form of government can go this way, democracy can go this way, monarchy can go this way, dictatorship can go this way, anything else as well. Here's what this means for us. Let me, let me bring this down the ground, give you some legs for what this means for your life. Our highest allegiance is to Jesus. And necessarily not to the governments of this world. You know, there was a time in Australia when you could have fairly comfortably, kind of, in a way, sat with saying that you did both. Uh, that, that time is increasingly over. The Bible calls us to obey governments. Don't get me wrong here. It says that quite specifically, but only insofar as we can do that whilst obeying God. First Peter gives us a great, a great rubric for how we do this. It says, honour the emperor and fear God. What that means is that we are not called to be anarchists, but we acknowledge that ultimately we serve a higher throne. And if the governments of our day call us to disobey King Jesus, we are to have no doubt who our allegiance belongs to. We follow Jesus. Number two, our allegiance is to Jesus, so we need to be ready to lose the blessings. That, come, that, are, that are given by governments of our day in order to maintain faithfulness within the blessings of true King Jesus. This can be hard, a hard life to be called to, especially when the government of a nation is moving further away from God. It's a hard call. You'll notice there in the passage it says that the, the beast prevented them from being able to buy and sell. The second beast there. Um, this is the thing. People, as governments move away from Jesus, as as nations cease to follow him, they limit what can be done by those who follow Jesus and whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know, John writes these challenging words in the middle of the passage, and like. I don't know about you, I get to them and I'm like, I really want to find a way to explain this that doesn't mean that this is just talking about us. But it's just talking about us. It's talking about the church. He says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. As the Apostle John writes this, He is in captivity on a slave labor island because he declares the testimony of Jesus. Church history tells us that they tried to kill him as well but it didn't pan out. John knew the weight of these words that he was writing. He's not an armchair theologian telling you to live a hard life whilst he lives an easy life. As we go on in Australia it's quite possible we will learn the weight of these words in greater ways than the generations that have immediately preceded us. Maybe not. Can I say as well? Maybe not. Maybe we will see revival. Maybe we will see repentance. Maybe we will see a a turning back to Jesus. There has been a rhythm in history of that happening. I don't know if you've looked back. You know, you look at things like the Great Awakening in the US and UK and, and before them, the, the, the collapse of society in immorality and, and, and disobedience to God was immense and yet suddenly you had these explosions of faith and we pray for that, we want that. It wouldn't be the first time that that had happened. But even if things get harder here instead... John says this is a call for the endurance of the saints. We don't need to collapse under that. This is a call to endure with allegiance to King Jesus because our faith is in him. Because although the beast might present himself as saviour, only Jesus can save. The beast might offer hope to people, but only Jesus can offer a lasting hope to people. The beast might offer prosperity and comfort. He might offer to fill all of your needs, but those things will be stripped away in a moment. And there is only one king who offers eternal rest. All right, let's meet our second beast, shall we? Contestant number two. John says that he saw another beast rising out of the earth. So we've got a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. Again, this beast imitates Jesus. Immediately, we see that he has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. He performs signs and apparent miracles, many of which echo the prophets of the Old Testament. And all of this is done so that people will worship the first beast. That's his purpose. If the first beast is dragon-manipulated political power, the second beast is dragon-manipulated religious institutions. Which, although they may even claim to follow Jesus, really call people to worship the powers of this world, to put all of their hope in them, to trust in them, not in him. And these dragon-manipulated religious institutions work... Their work is that they do two things. First, foremost... They make the the inhabitants of the earth worship the first beast, like we said. Second, they cause the people of the earth to be marked with the mark of the beast on their hand and on their forehead. Now, what's in view there is not a physical marking any more than in the following chapter, where it says that the followers of the lamb are marked on the forehead with the name of the lamb and and of his father. We're not... I don't believe we're meant to be looking for a tattoo at some point that's represented here, or a bank card. In, in the next chapter, like I said, we're going we're gonna to meet the counter image to this, of, of the, the mark of Jesus and of his father being put on the forehead of the... Uh, in fact, it says, sorry, it's really important. It says the name of the lamb and of his father is marked on the forehead of those who follow him. The point there is that we are to be marked with the character of, of our God. You might know in the Bible when it talks about name, it's not really how we use name. We use name like it's Jeff. Whereas when the Bible talks about a person's name, it can go much deeper about who that person is and their identity and what makes them who they are. And so being marked with the name of the lamb and of his father is to be marked with the character of the lamb and of his father, the character of Jesus. But, but here in our chapter, the same thing's happening. Greg Beal is helpful here. He says, the forward represents, the forward represents the ideological commitment and the hand, the practical outworking of that commitment. What do you believe and what you do about that belief? Character is in view. Identity is in view. And here's the point. Religious institutions which call people away from the worship of Jesus and instead into the worship of political power cause people to be marked with the ideology and character of the powers of the day. Even if they claim to be Christian, those who follow them are marked not with the character of Jesus but the character of Satan who's the one sending these into the world, remember? Not marked with Christ-like humility and self-sacrifice, but with beastly pride and selfishness. In John's day, this was in operation inside and outside of the church already. The outside version of the beast was obvious, right? The imperial cult existed, literally a religion set up to worship the emperor doesn't get more clear than that but within the church this was also happening back in back in chapters two and three what was the issue that we saw over and over that was crippling churches false teachings were coming false prophets were coming the nicolaitans jezebel and they were teaching the churches to compromise their allegiance to jesus with their allegiance to the world to mix it with the allegiance to the emperor and to the world that would make their lives more comfortable in this world, and would tear their faith to the ground, though they weren't told it. Let me say, the beast within the church is going strong today. This is a call for discernment, church. It's a challenging one. So many Christians are willing to listen to just about anything that claims to be Christian teaching But the character of the teaching will reveal it. Does it point towards the sufficiency of Jesus? The power of his cross, the victory of the empty tomb. Does it teach us to walk in line with his character and his self-sacrificial love? Does it call us to humility or to pride? Does it live like it calls us to humility or pride? Does it call us to glorify God and witness to the world, even at the expense of of worldly good? Even if it costs us getting on the wrong side of government, does it call us to be faithful to Jesus? There's there's one more point of application I want to bring out here um, before we finish today. But before I do, let's just deal with To get to it, that last thing in this passage, which I'm sure we'd have a few people who'd be really cheesed at me if I didn't even mention it, um, including myself. The last verse of the chapter says that the beast has a number. It's not a phone number. (laughs) Lots of people have tried to identify this beast as a specific person from this number. In many, in many ancient languages, numbers uh, and letters overlapped. So like in ancient Greek, you don't have an alphabet and a, and a set of numbers. Number bet? I don't know. Um, but uh, you, had, you had the letters could also be used as numbers. Uh, and so you could write n- names in numbers, or you could have a number that was the sum total of the numbers of a name, for instance. Um, now the letters to Nero Caesar fit if you write them in Greek and then if you transliterate them into Hebrew, not translate them into Hebrew, like like make the Greek letters into Hebrew letters. Ronald Wilson Reagan was an interesting suggestion Um, at one point. He had three names of six letters and at one point he lived at the number 666. It was his street address. He got it changed, I think, for understandable reasons. I I read one person, and uh, there have been hundreds of suggestions of who you can get from this number. Uh, And I read one person who made a really helpful comment about this. He said, we can't infer much from the fact that that a key fits the lock if it's a lock in which almost any key can fit. But let me suggest there's a simpler understanding of this number which is much more in line with what we've seen in this book so far. The number is a symbol. Almost all of the numbers in the Revelation are symbolic numbers. They have significance, symbolically. And it's not a complicated symbol. And in the end, it is a symbol which can be used to personify all three of these beasts. The dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. Work with me here. What's, what's the number that we've seen the most of in the Revelation so far? Come up more times than any other number. 4,200? Seven, thank you, seven. Um, seven. It signifies completeness, wholeness. All of God's plans are marked with sevens. The working outs of them are marked with sevens. You know, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls... The lamb is marked with sevens in his appearance. There's so many sevens in this book, even down to the fact that it's written to seven churches. There were more than seven churches in John's day, and yet it's written to seven churches. Again and again, this number arises. Now get this. Work with me here. Six is one less than seven. I know. Thank you. Six... Means not up to seven. Six, if seven is complete, six is incomplete. The beast. The dragon, his manipulated political powers, his manipulated religious powers are always presenting themselves as the solution, always presenting themselves as all-powerful, always presenting themselves as the only hope and the only saviour. But this here, this exposes them. They are absolutely and completely incomplete. They are six, three times to nail at home. Always striving to be like God, never succeeding. All of their plans will in the end fail. Their offers of salvation and hope will never come to meaningful fruition, which brings us to the ultimate point of the passage. Don't fall for the rhetoric. Don't be impressed by the powers of this world. Don't fall for the lie that the right political party is the solution to the world's problems and your problems. Don't give them your worship. Don't waste your worship on those who are completely incomplete. Instead, give your worship to the one who is absolutely, completely complete. Put all your hope in Jesus. Invest your life in following him. Otherwise, you're just putting your life into something that doesn't reach the mark. Even if it costs you the respect of the powers of this world, give your worship to the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Our God is the only one who can completely save, the only one who gives complete hope, the only one who will reign completely forever and who invites you in to reign with him as you trust in Jesus. Let me say, if if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, then you will have been putting your trust in incomplete things. And today is the day when God's challenging you to turn and trust in the only one who is worth trusting. Follow the only one who is worth following. Give your worship to the one who is only, who is the only one who is worthy. If you are a follower of Jesus, this could be a challenge to you to turn back, to stop, stop putting faith in things in this world. Sometimes even us who follow Jesus, we We get sidetracked we start believing that wow what 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 our nation really needs most is for that that party to get voted in and then things would be good do you remember back in revelation 5 when we met the lamb who was slain and like a voice in heaven calls out, and God's on his throne holding his plans with seals on them, and seven seals, by the way, and, and a voice calls out, who is worthy? None of the governments of the world were worthy to make it right, to fulfil the plans of God, to restore the world to where it should be. He heard, John wept, we could weep with him some days, no one was found who was worthy. In heaven or on earth or under the earth. There is only one. The angel says to him, weep no more. The lamb who was slain has overcome. He has conquered. He is worthy. He is worthy of all of our praise and all of our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come in confession and say that there are often times when we think that we know the solution best and that it's not you. When we, even without knowing it, pin our hopes elsewhere and trust in the things of this world. Lord, we pray that you would war against the powers of this world that would seek to take your place, that pretend to be you, that pretend to be God. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray for our hearts, Lord, that you would war against the things in us, the old self that says, trust in the world. Trust that government can fix it, trust that you don't need Jesus for that and that in every part of our lives instead, Lord, we would be turning to you, worshipping you, seeing the great worthiness of our God and following you in every way. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table now, to the bread, to the cup, fill us again with a vision of your worthiness and your greatness that you're the only one who is worth giving our lives to and lead us to follow lord in jesus name we pray amen